And welcome, you're listening to 87.6 FM, Apollo Bay Radio, The Wellness Couch with Brett and Katerina Morrison. And uh, Tom Cronin is our guest today. We're so looking forward to this chat. Can meditation and mindfulness change the world? Now, Tom Cronin, what a change maker, Brett. He's a man on a mission, 26 years in the finance sector, the founder of the Stillness Project, which is uh, transforming like a, a billion lives uh, through online platforms, writer and producer of the film The Portal. He's published six books to his name and uh, corporate leadership coach to many well-known brands such as uh, Fairfax Media, Coca-Cola, Aventus, Commonwealth Bank, etc. How are you going, Tom? I'm great. Thanks for inviting me along today. Looking forward to it. So um, grateful having you on tonight. Thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, thanks, Tom. It's uh, great to have you on the show tonight. Yeah, it's all good to be here. So what I'd like to do is, what, how we normally like to start is just having you let the audience know a bit, bit about yourself and how this journey for you all started. Yeah, gosh, uh, it goes back a little bit of time, so I'll try and keep it pretty short. Uh, but I, uh, I left school and was uh, backpacking around the world. I wanted to, uh, when I came back, finish my degree doing journalism and writing about capitalistic greed in the Times magazine. But uh, to fill in some time, I applied for a job in a bunch of, pa- uh, uh, bunch of jobs in the papers, and one of them was on a trading room floor, very much like Wolf of Wall Street. Yeah, wow. And I just needed some money to uh, get me through to uh, avoid eating two-minute noodles at university. So I applied, <laughs> applied for these jobs, and lo and behold, I knew uh, before long I landed on a trading room floor um, trading swaps and bonds on international markets. So that was kind of like a, a turning point in my career where it was just fast, it was furious, it was exciting, and I thought I'd just put off that university degree for a while. And before long, I got swept along by the fever of the late 80s, early 90s, the finance markets, which were like the Wild West back then. Oh, and, uh, yeah, it was kind of out of control. So very much like Wolf of Wall Street, uh, the things that you saw in the movie kind of gave me yeah. goosebumps when I saw that. And before long, you know, we're doing lots of drugs, partying, drinking, like it was 1999. And uh, that led to extreme uh, sort of symptoms showing up in my body over time. Uh, a lot of the, this was lifestyle choices and the nature of the job. And so I was getting a lot of anxiety and panic attacks and uh, this morphed into a depression mm. and eventually some really crippling panic attacks that yeah. I, I just literally was uh, quite incapacitated. And then um, this exacerbated as I continued to ignore those symptoms until one day in um uh, when I was 29 years old, I had a, like a full-blown nervous breakdown. Wow. And yeah. so uh, that was uh, quite a deteriorated state that I went into. I was put on psych watch, seeing uh, wow. uh, psychiatrists yeah. and put on pharmaceuticals and seeing doctors. So I was, I was in a pretty bad way back then. And um, that, it was in that time that I came across meditation, of all things. I was watching TV and saw a documentary about uh, Bruno Grollo, who was a big property developer back then. Yeah. And uh, he was talking about, uh, you know, his um, his time as a property developer and how he used meditation to help him be calm and successful. And that was like a mm. light bulb moment for me. You know, I hadn't really heard about meditation. I had never come across it in my life, but I knew that there was something really powerful in that. So that's really where it all started was uh, I just started to do some research into mindfulness meditation and it was just a, a really transformational thing. Uh, it, it completely revolutionized and evolutionized my life to the point where interestingly uh, I went back into work had to take some mental health leave for time and went back to work with the same clients the same company for 16 more years surprisingly wow yeah 
yeah, that's and then a- eventually, eventually left that to become a teacher full-time, which is where I am now. Yeah, that's fantastic. And I find it really fascinating because we have a lot of guests come on and quite often their journey does come from a pivot in life where mm-hmm. they come to a turning point and, you know, or the health breaks down and, they, and they're almost like forced down a path and then they go, wow. This is this is amazing. How come how come I haven't heard of this before? Yeah, it takes a crisis um, to force change, doesn't it? Tom, did you recognise um, any of the symptoms? Were they subtle um, as they were arising to get you to navigate your new path, or were they, you know, did they knock you out? They kind of were just this gradual incremental change of just deterioration of health and happiness. You know, it just kind of creeps up on you before you know it. You're in a sort of fairly deep dark place, and and not you know I didn't know what a panic attack was. I didn't know what. I didn't know I had insomnia. I just couldn't sleep. You know, it wasn't like I had a label on those things that you go and get it treated. It's just like I'm just I'm just not sleeping well. I'm just not feeling great. I'm just anxious all the time, and I have these waves of fear and dread. So it was something that I didn't realize was happening, to be honest with you, until it kind of completely blew up in, um, in 1996. Uh, um, and that's really interesting. So as you navigated that new survival pattern that, or, or modelling that you were talking about, the new mental and emotional patterns, did you realise that the, uh, the uh, relationships around you changed as well, as you changed? Yeah, from you know, it was quite dramatic how you know, and it's quite challenging, you know, when we go through these changes, you know, on many levels. Uh, particularly when I stopped doing the type of things that I was doing that were causing all of those problems. So I slept all the late nights and all the drugs and all the drinking. You know, I was waking up at six to go and do yoga and meditate at the beach. You know, I was you know, meditating in the evening when I got home from work and um, avoiding a lot of the the craziness of the industry. And I had to find a new way to even you know, interact in the finance industry, which didn't change. You know, I changed, but it didn't change. So um, I had to find ways to socialise and engage with marketing with my clients who were big traders in investment banks. So um, all of that was quite a, a big shift that you have to navigate as you start to change your life. Yeah, that's, it takes me back. I guess I'm sort of laughing at myself here because I, I know when I started down that path, I was probably a similar age actually, but I was in the military and I used to get called bead boy. Um, because they I got all... mung bean boy. You know, did you? <laughs> yeah, he's was... boy mung bean boy. There you go. He's like a rock band, right? Yeah, absolutely. I was going to ask you if you got if you, if people sort of identified you in a certain bracket because that, that industry sure. would be fairly hardcore. Yeah, yeah, it was it, it was tough. You know, like you know, I was creating a point of difference. Like you know, for you, uh, you know, when we start to create a point of difference in a relationship, yeah. it fractures it. Even with my my wife, you know, she, for two years. Um, you know, I was going off to meditation classes and I was going off to retreats and I was reading spiritual books and I'd put aside 20 minutes morning and evening to meditate. So for her, I was, you know, sabotaging the relationship. I was creating this big divide because I was having an experience that she wasn't having. And the natural first step in those types of things is to, to criticize or sabotage the thing that's creating that point of difference. So for her, it was, um, you know, a criticism of those things that I was doing. But eventually... Like when Harry met Sally, you know, the Meg Ryan yeah. been in the cafe. It's like, oh, gosh, you know, I want what he's having because whatever he's doing <laughs> seems to be working for him. So, yeah. um, you know, it, it just is about, and it's what I teach my clients, is stay true to your path. And that's what becomes inspiring. Just be inspirational and that will inspire others to join you. Yeah. Yeah, it's a nice way to look at it. Um, so we're talking about mindfulness and meditation, obviously, and how can it actually change the world. So, um, Tom, I mean, you're the meditation teacher, the, the guru. Um, so th- 
there is obviously much change um, in the world today, driving the body from, you know, like a sympathetic state to a parasympathetic state. What do you think that um, some of our impediments to be, um, to becoming aware are? It's such a great question, and I, I really love that you touched on the founding problem of, of where we are on the planet right now, that we're, we're just have a, a large portion of the world's population stuck in sympathetic nervous system states. And it's interesting, I'm, I'm writing a book at the moment called Deep Calm with a ghostwriter and who's kind of supporting me with editing right. and making some changes and stuff. And she, she's a psychologist and she, she was, um, not to criticise her, but she uh, is working and sees anxiety as a, a state of uh, a mental issue, which to some degree, of course, it is. But really, I was explaining to her how much it's physiological as well and that so much of anxiety and stress and overwhelm yeah, is actually... Yeah a result of the state the body's in the nervous system and we have to address that as well and so i see meditation as a critical part in getting us out of that overwhelmed stress state you know it's very hard to continually just talk someone into being calm (laughs) you know uh, you can't get someone to read a book into calmness it can give you the intellectual idea and the concepts but we have to actually generate that physiological experience of what calmness is and that's getting into parasympathetic nervous system state and so i come from a very physiological teaching with our meditation practice is that we we get to the body by getting through the mind it's it's the the gateway through to the body so if we calm the mind and we remove that um you know the activity that incessant activity of the mind then what happens is we get into a very deep physiological state of restfulness and what happens in that state of restfulness is quite phenomenal we change our biochemistry Oh, out amazing, of yeah. um, the mm. fear-based cortisol and adrenaline into serotonin, melatonin, and oxytocin. And everything changes when that happens it because does, we start yeah. to operate from a very different place, a mm. non-reactive, non-emotional, more calm, more clear, more um, you know, uh, present and, and just make much more rational decisions. And, um, yeah, it, it's, it's phenomenal how quickly that can change, not just one person's life, but I believe it's one of the keys to the world. Yeah, well, well, like you said, I mean, we've got, what, sixty to 70,000 different thoughts that recycle each day. So all those yeah. chemicals, biochemicals that come out and, and shape our behaviour and thoughts and hormones and, you know, stress that we have such stimulating and stressful lives at the moment um, that contract our frontal lobes, I think, that restrict and impede our level of thinking and awareness. And, and I think this is beautiful that we're talking to you and this is where, um, you know, people like you can do great things with, with yeah. community at the moment. And I love you touched on the fact that it's a physiological approach because, you know, if we go back to our saber-toothed tiger days where we had that fight-flight response, the adrenaline got used up, but in, in this day and age, we don't have that run or fight response. We just get this angry response and normally we're stuck in a cubicle at the office or stuck in a car. So the ability to physically drain the body of that adrenaline just doesn't occur anymore so it gets built up and so like you like you said there tom it's it actually manifests in a physical anxiety there is a physiological response to that it's not just a a mental aspect yeah you know totally 100 percent. the thing that really blew me away was uh you know i i was experiencing extreme anxiety panic attacks depression clinically diagnosed yeah and then someone gave me this technique of quieting the mind you know for mine it was using a mantra and there's many different techniques but i found that that transcending meditation styles be very effective and accessible for for me personally and i just couldn't believe how quickly all of those anomalies just melted away 
simply because I was getting my body out of a long-term sustained sympathetic nervous system state and into a parasympathetic nervous system state. And I was like, why the heck is the world not doing this? Like, this is crazy. This should be implemented in prisons, schools, hospitals, everywhere. Um, and that's what um, I guess I, a bit annoyingly so I became very passionate about um, trying to make mainstream um, meditation. Well, you've um, you've sort of disrupted the TM model, haven't you? The the transcendental meditation model with your Vedic meditation, is that right? That you've brought in? Oh, look, it's it's a little bit more layered than that. To be honest with you, and I'll, I'll, I'll share some light on that. So we've got transcendental meditation, which is the, an organisation with a trademark, um, and they're doing some great work in the world. Uh, it's a very well structured organisation with protocols and systems and processes. And um, and, and my teacher that I learned from. Uh, no longer wanted to be part of that structure. And, you know, it was about paying fees. They were having a political party established. Some of you might remember that listening, the Natural Law Party that I think ran in the House of Reps many years ago. Yeah. And um, so a lot of the funds from the teachers had to go and fund that political process. And uh, I guess my teacher didn't really want to subscribe from that top-down type approach. And so he uh, disconnected from the TM organisation and then started Vedic meditation. But because by default he taught me how to meditate, and um, but that, by natural association, meant that I was now a Vedic meditation teacher or Vedic meditation student. However, um, I took it a little bit further. What I found when I became a teacher, you know, when, when I first was teaching, there was really no internet, um, no YouTube, no um, apps and things Jeez, like that. So you just man. taught it in person-to-person, face-to-face, and there quite a fair bit of time and input from the teacher. So there was a, a decent sort of upfront fee for the student to pay which made it very inaccessible for A, people locally, uh, so because of locality, and B, because of the cost. And so I realised that when I started doing blogs and YouTube videos and other things that um, people all around the world were asking if I could find a way to teach them the technique. And I was in a real conundrum as to how do I get this technique to people in Venezuela or Mexico or yeah. the housing estates mm-hmm. of England that A, couldn't afford it, or B, couldn't access me in person because that was the only way technically you're allowed to teach it from what we were taught. And so I was really in this sort of fork in the road of do I just stay true to the the tradition and the protocol or do I disrupt that model a little bit? And I guess I was a bit of a bad boy as a broker um, many years ago and I kind of defaulted (laughs) into being a little bit of a rebel when it came (laughs) to being a meditation teacher. So I I did disrupt that model and put it into a digital format, which we we now have access to on our website. Oh, lucky us. Called Faster Deeper Bliss, yeah. Fantastic. And and so you've got specific primordial sounds, haven't you, that you utilise on this journey? That's right, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Are they actually utilised to, or just for for the audience, are they utilised to change brainwaves to... Is it theatre? Well, your, your brainwaves are always changing. Um, you can watch a Netflix TV show and one minute you're at uh, the dinner table with your kids talking about uh, school homework or, you know, puppy dogs, and then you decide dinner's over, you put the kids to bed and you put on Saw 3 or, you know, yeah. American Psycho or whatever, you know, and all <laughs> of a sudden your brainwaves are going to be influenced by what you're interacting with. Yeah, your brainwaves yeah. can be influenced by the news, by seeing a car crash, by watching the notebook. And so the same thing happens when we meditate with the mantras, the mantras have this capacity to move us out of the beta brainwave frequency into that delta deep relaxation yeah. process. And people are using binaural beats to do that, which is really a, um, a technological, not rip-off, but yeah. emulation of the mantra. Yeah. Yeah, so look, I once had a martial art teacher um, say to me once that no one achieved anything by sitting on their backside doing nothing. 
Um, <laughs> he was alluding to the fact that I was meditating. Uh, <laughs> so, um, but I'd love to get your thoughts he obviously on... obviously, just on that, I just got to say, he obviously didn't see Karate Kid because the teacher taught the Karate Kid, the little kid, that uh, yeah. sitting in stillness and doing nothing are two very different things. Well, that was that was going to be my question. Could you just explore that a little bit more? Because like, that isn't the same. Like Sitting still, like doing nothing is not the same as being still, is it? No, that's right. Because yeah. you know you can you can be seen to be doing nothing, but have lots of crazy thoughts going on in your mind. And you know yeah. you just look at a bunch of people sitting on a bus, where their mind is going is is leaving a, uh, a shift in biochemistry, which is leaving even a shift subtly in their physiology. And this is quite exhausting, as you said before. That there's you know fifty to seventy thousand thoughts a day, which means there's fifty to seventy thousand shifts in your biochemistry oh, and physiology, yeah. which is yeah. absolutely exhausting. So. Um, Sitting and doing nothing is actually not doing nothing. It's actually still having thought forms and, and biochemical changes and physiological changes. But when we go into meditation, two things happen, particularly if we reach those deeper transcendent states where we now have a state of wakefulness and the mind is no longer um, it's, it's no longer thinking, but it's also not unconscious in that it's conscious and awake and aware and alert, but there's no thought. And this is a phenomenal state where we don't have physiological activity because there's no neurological activity there's no thought forms so we reach a deep physiological level of rest four times deeper than what we experience when we're asleep it's quite remarkably deep so it's a profound state of restfulness that allows a reorganization and restoration in the physical body but what also happens is the mind gets out of the conditioned encoded repetitive thought forms that it's normally in and it starts to access, it's like dipping into a dye, a deep, incredible field of, of, of dye, of, of consciousness. So now our mind is in the field of pure potential and infinite creativity. It's a, a field of formlessness, but a vast field of intelligence. And what happens is we start to, as we immerse in that on a more regular basis, we start to have a much more expanded and creative um, mindset as we bring our mind out of that expansive field from meditation and go back into our day. And that's why Oprah Winfrey, who does these transcending yeah, meditations, she says, quote, um, it's only from that space can you create your best work and your best life. Oh, isn't that beautiful? But everything's actually pure potential, isn't it? Like, oh, I've always thought that all ideas are actually already in the field. So our potential to ve- develop and be our best version of ourselves are really endless if you can tap into that field. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Everything that's manifest and cognized is from the field of infinite possibility and then becomes a cognition into a manifestation. So being a corporate leadership coach as well, how do you incorporate these values to um, the leaders? It's it's a great question. What we play with with um, my coaching clients is that first and foremost that meditation plays a critical part in that their, their ability to create and design their life is is quite endless. Uh, you know, for me, I've gone from being a broker on a trading room floor just in a few years to working with some of the top companies, having apps out, films out, books yeah, out, yeah. speaking engagements. And that was because I had really awesome coaches that helped me expand my vision and for me to do what I call critical thinking, where we, we, we push the upper limits of our brain uh, tendencies, we call them vasanas, tendencies of the mind, over that threshold of what's comfortable into the uncomfortable, into the unknown, and start to explore what can you create with your life that's not been created right now. Um, and so we really push them into expanding their own self-perception of who they are 
and expanding their awareness of what's possible in their life, really coming out of, pulling it out of the field of infinite possibility. But we also look at the macro level and look at where the world's at and what does the world need from you right now? How can we support the evolution and uplift of the planet through our work? It's just amazing because meditation gives us significant insights into who we are, who we can be, um, and how far we can evolve, just just not individually, but as a species, you know, you get to create your vision and set your intention and come to the present and formulate those steps, obviously. But if you want to see change in the world, we need to shift our consciousness and be the change, as, as Gandhi said. Yeah, you know, we did a screening of my film, The Portal, at uh, the World Economic Forum in Davos. It was actually, interestingly, uh, just as wow, COVID was Davos, breaking yeah. <laughs> out. And I've got a weird kind of feeling that COVID actually emerged from Davos at the World Economic Forum. Uh, it was early last year, 2020. And um, it's a whole other story, but uh, a lot of people, myself included, were getting very, very sick at Davos. Um, but I guess um, it, it was a, a classic place for something to go viral because you've mm. got people from all over the world descending on a very small village in Switzerland. Yeah. But we did a screening. We met a lot of people there. And um, they were all really proposing really big things in the world and exciting things. But one of the things that I challenged them on in our meetings was that you know, you're trying to implement strategies and processes to make the world a different and better place. But you're you're doing that in a world where the state of minds of those people is not expanding or growing or evolving, you know, very little just in some respects. And we're, we're trapped in this recurring repetitive mindset, which which is a real challenge to, to see progress when people keep defaulting back to old patterns and old ways. So my challenge that we have with the world is that when we try to get um, quite progressive, when... We have most of the world in a state of, uh, you know, egoic um, tendencies mm, based upon coding yeah. and conditioning. It's really hard to break those codes yeah. and those patterns. Yeah, it would be. And I'd even go as far as to say, look, if you look at Claire Graves' work in Spiral Dynamics, it's sort mm-hmm. of, you know, there's different countries around the mm. world that are at different levels. So, like Australia, mm. I'd, I'd say it'd be like a level four type of group, which is very social, community-based. And if someone steps outside the boundaries of what's acceptable, the group will smack you down. You don't need a leader or a government <coughs> yeah. to smack you down. The group will smack you down. Whereas if, say, if you look at, say, yeah. America, that's more that level five, which entrepreneurial, where they celebrate someone's wins and successes um, of, of the individual. And so that challenge, from a world economic standpoint, each country, and then you go to the third world countries where they're fighting just to get food on the table, um, you know, very, very different dynamics around the whole world. So that would be a, a rather large challenge for them, I think. Yeah, look, I mean, I, I love spiral dynamics and altitudes of development by uh, Ken Wilbur and Claire Glaves. And yeah. it's stuff that I work with with my, um, my, my coaching clients is that, you know, our, our primary objective once they give them that perspective is that we really need to get the, the world as quickly as possible up into those uh, states of uh, transcendence, awareness, yeah. experience of being awake and oneness uh, and divine qualities because from that by default as we experience ourselves more of that unified field and an extension of other then it's very hard for us to um, manipulate coerce or suppress other when we definitively experience other as ourselves and so it's this is why um what inspires me to do my work is that um it's it's very hard to shift someone out of their state uh, and start thinking you know, predominantly about other, which is other planet, uh, the animals, plants, yeah. and, you know, 
than humans when when they're trapped in their own personal individual pursuits just because of where they're at. Um, so yeah, it's a big shift we've got to do yet. Yeah. Uh, um, and let me address the portal, the film which you wrote and produced as you follow what six people through their meditation journey, redeeming themselves from their early societal paradigms, um, indoctrinations, and narratives. Um, there was a quote in there by I think that was he a neuro neuroscientist. Some mm-hmm. former doctor, yeah. And he said that as human beings, by default, if you were to take away the distractions of modern society, is to care for, for another. When you care for another, everything works at its best. Yeah, it's Dr. James Doty, beautiful man. Yeah. And I thought, this is one of the strong messages we wanted to get in that film was that, um, you know, when we strip away all of these distractions, when we strip away our fatigue and our worries and our anxieties and we get to the very essence of being and the very essence of who we are, we find there's such a gentle lovingness and such a kindness there within all of us, you know. And, and, and we see it. We don't have to be meditators to experience that because we know it's there in all of us and, and uh, there's lots of non-meditators that have these beautiful qualities emerging um, through them. And so um, it's just about getting us whatever path we take, whatever tools we use to just um, to be more of our truth. And um, meditation is just one of the tools that I like to talk about, but I'm sure there's many other tools that people could use, like yoga and qigong and plant medicines and all sorts of things. Yeah, like yes, some of those things that you've mentioned, like yoga, qigong, and you know, martial arts or running. There's so many different things that people can do, but they can all be a form of meditation, can't they? Uh, I think people quite often think that meditation is you know, finding yourself up in the mountains, locking yourself on away in a cave for 25 <laughs> years, uh, not socialising anything, just, you know, sustaining on the, the dew of, you know, some ginkgo leaves, as they'd say in Kung Fu Panda. Um, but it's it's not like that, is it? No, look, you know, I, I, I teach all my students that, you know, it's, it's not a one-stop shop. This, you know, it, it's a great tool. It's very important to integrate. I think we should all be integrating it in some way, shape or form on a daily basis, that, that time for stillness. Look, there is a difference. Um, meditation, uh, you know, running can be a meditative experience. Swimming can be a meditative experience. Mm. Um, however, stillness is, is very different. Yeah. And so having that stillness of mind and body, that stillness is the absence of motion. So I, I think stillness is a very important thing to incorporate on a daily basis as is activity. So for me, you know, I was doing sets of stairs and this morning I do sauna, I do gym, I do um, yoga, I do, uh, you know, obviously very aware of my nutrition in, intake and um, I do think it's got to be a holistic approach to health and wellness and I think one of the things that's happening in the world right now is an opportunity to really start to appreciate what is health and how do we really embody health because it's not a given you don't just deserve health you have to earn it you have to yeah. um, you know work at that yeah. and once we start to realize that and have a greater respect for our health I think we'll find that we can be a much healthier and happier society. There's, Tom, there's never been a more perfect time um, within this changing world to try meditation. How do you introduce meditation to a newbie? Uh, look, there's two different ways. One is people can just dip their toe in the water. Uh, so go to YouTube and find a meditation or uh, you know, find an app that you can get a freebie. What I tend to find is that quite often if you dabble in an experience that doesn't quite validate the technique, it's very hard to get them back again. Um, so what I generally recommend is find a qualified teacher, find a technique that is going to really give you uh, a definitive, tangible experience that you can quantify that says, wow, this this is a game changer. This actually really does work. 
Um, so some of the willy-nilly stuff that is just really difficult, you know, for me, I did a lot of research into it and I tried a number of different techniques and yeah. I found that they weren't quite cutting it. And when I came across one that was taught by neuroscientists that it had a hundred, gosh, it was a thousand scientific studies validating the technique and I had distinct um, noticeable changes from that practice quite quickly within the first week. Um, it was just something that I could easily embrace. And a lot of people used to say to me, gosh, you're so disciplined with your meditation. Yeah. However, it didn't require discipline because discipline to me, in my mind, is doing something that you don't want to do but doing it because you think you should. Yeah. But I actually wanted to do it because it just felt so good. Right, yeah. And so I, I think um, because the, the first step is dabble around and have a look and see what you can find that, that you like um, in the free versions. But if you really want to go all in, you know, do a course, get trained, find a teacher that's qualified and, and, and do it properly. I guess it's like anything, you know. So um, there's been lots of talk about the meditation and some people do it for two hours a day or they get up early at four o'clock. Um, and some people like to do 20-minute increments in the morning and 20 at night. Have you found any particular method more efficacious? Or it, yeah, look, I do, I, I do find 20 minutes. Um, depending on the technique, you know, if someone's done, say, a Vipassana and they recommend yeah. one hour once a day, then if that's the teaching and that's the protocol, then I'd suggest following that guidance from that qualified practitioner. Um, for the technique that I do, which is the Vedic or Transcendental Meditation, you know, the, the technique there is uh, 20 minutes morning and 20 minutes afternoon. And why they suggested 20 is that um, it just takes a, a period of time to really get that mind and body uh, de-excited to a degree that you're going to start to get the impact. <laughs> um, why I you like don't that. need more than... <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's just the reality, you know. Yeah. The other systems are busy, our mind's busy, it's just going to take yeah. time. Yeah. Um, I think there was the, um, one guy, I can't remember, it was the guy from Lululemon, he had a one-minute meditation. Like, seriously, dude, like, that's just, it's going to have such a little impact yeah. and such little effect that I would be very surprised if anyone's sustaining that. And you can get these micro moments of, of rest and respite, but um, and I'm all good for that. But if you really want to see a significant change in your physiology and your biochemistry, uh, I'd suggest possibly longer than 10 minutes, ideally. Uh, 15 to 20 would be great. Um, and ideally, just because the level of stimulation that we have in our world today, you'd probably, I'd recommend one in the morning and one in the afternoon. Yeah, and that's interesting. I remember a meme um, that said if we could get eight-year-olds to meditate at school, it would solve world issues. Do you have programs for teens and children meditations as well? Yeah, look, I've got a kids book out for sort of um, up to eight-year-olds, and it's called Missy Moo Meditates, and it's Missy oh, Moo and her sister Boo. She's she's teaching her sister how to meditate. So there's a practice in the book uh, how to meditate, and there's a guided meditation link in the back of the book, um, and that's for kids up to eight. And then we have a teen meditation on my website. Fantastic. Uh, which is up to sort of 18-year-olds. Yeah, because... Um, and then from 18, they go into my ad adults program. Um, it's very sobering when you look at the stats. You know, one in 14 is diagnosed with anxiety, depression. Um, and, and obviously, like every parent will tell you, that uh, the teens need to be connected constantly with their, their peers via technology these days. So um, would modelling behaviour be representative here to guide our children and teens? Like, you know, how do you think we could change their behaviour yeah, look, a lot of people used to say to me, you know, oh, gosh, you should work with kids because I've got two teenagers yeah. myself, two 19-year-olds, they're twins. And um, people you would always suggest that I, I work with kids, but I, I said, look, you know, really the problem's with the parents. Yeah. Uh, if we have stressed parents, we're going to have yep. stressed kids. Yeah. And yep. 
we have, kids learn through osmosis. They're like sponges. You know, if they see dad driving like a wreck and getting uh, completely wasted at night and screaming and yelling at people in the traffic, sticking his finger up, they're just going to think that's normal. You know, they're going to, yeah. they're just going to absorb that stress and, and emulate that stress, as you said. So, um, look, it's not, if I'm a meditator, which I am, it doesn't mean I'm going to have perfect kids by any means. Um, they're still going to have to deal with their own issues in life. My kids don't actually meditate a lot. My, my daughter prefers to meditate a little bit more than my son. Um, but my son's a drummer in a punk band, so, you know, yeah. so it's like, uh, he's, he's got to go on his own journey just as I did. And, yeah, for sure. Um, what they do is they do, uh, I believe, pick up certain qualities and characteristics and traits and manners um, that you, you kind of embody overall as a general. So um, I think it's critical that we just get a lot less stressed parents happening in the world. Well, they do pick up, don't they? They'll, they'll go, they'll see how you operate in your yeah. life and how you particularly operate under those stressful situations and how you respond to other people. And then they'll see other people in their peer group or their friends, parents, under similar circumstances, and they'll go, gee, that's different. And, and yeah. at some point in their life, they'll go, I want to be more like that one. Um, <laughs> and, and so, you know, it's so, so true. Like once, once we get our own lives in order, we can be that beacon, we can be that model for other people to see and at some stage they'll make their own choices around it. Yeah, absolutely. It gives them the choice, I guess, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But are we never getting a positive round with, you know, our modern technology? Like I know um, there's always two sides of the story and, and, and technology is a very powerful way to communicate, um, you know, the creative side. But... Um, uh, you know, we've got smartphones, we've got Facebook, TV, Netflix, and it re- requires so much of our attention today. Is that leading to a disconnection to self, you know, to nature where we could be meditating and connecting to self or internally or, you know, to an animal, to a plant? And it's so much... Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. It's, it's, uh, it's you know, it's, it's got many benefits, of course, but it's, it's wreaking havoc on our society and it's wreaking havoc on our children as you said, the levels of anxiety, medication, insomnia, you know, kids getting messages at two, three in the morning. Oh. Um, you know, it's, it's that the, the reluctance to switch off, the, the need to always be on mm. and not miss anything, the FOMO that kids are feeling these days. Uh, it's, uh, I think we'll look back as a society and many generations to come uh, like we look back on the Easter Islanders and go, what on earth were they thinking uh, to just allow that to seep into their society like they did have? Could they not see mm, what yeah. was coming around the corner? Yeah, I know in some of the prep work we're doing for the show tonight, I was watching a YouTube clip that you're in and you shared the story about, I think it was someone from Netflix saying, you know, they have three competitors. One was like Facebook, one was YouTube and mm. one was sleep. Yeah. And... I hadn't really thought about it in that context before, yeah. but it's, it was really powerful when I heard that, and I thought that is so true, because not only are they competing for sleep, they they're competing for mind space too, aren't they? A hundred percent, yeah. You know, there's, a, there's only there's so many things your eyes can go onto on a daily basis, and there's literally millions and billions of choices uh, of where they can go now, and um, yeah, it's just unfortunately. For people without a sovereign state, without an, an empowered mm. state, um, and there's a there's a great whistleblower that used to be the ethics officer at a number of these companies, Tristan Harris. You can Google him and mm. find some YouTube talks. He's done some TED talks. 
um, he actually had to go into hiding because some of these companies were after him. Wow. Because he was revealing that these companies were actually designing their platforms specifically for, uh, you know, trying to addict people to their platforms so that they can steal their attention as much as possible. Yeah. Look, earlier you mentioned that you, you started seeing some changes within the first week of starting meditation. Would you like to share what some of those changes were? The biggest one was I started falling asleep. I mean, it was an incredible <laughs> phenomenon. You know, it was just mind-blowing. It would, it would take me, because of the nature of the job, you know, you're so switched on and you're watching yeah. every single, so many different things all day long. And add to that, you're doing, you know, some crazy kind of drugs back then. And yeah. um, when I got to bed and put my head on the pillow, it would be a minimum two hours before I'd fall asleep. And then mm. what would happen is you'd hit that 2 o'clock dream state, 2.30 dream state, and then I'd be wide awake and I just couldn't go back to sleep. So I was, you know, a lot of nights we, you know, getting two to three, you know, maximum four hours worth of sleep. It was just a wreck. So when I started meditating, because the biochemistry changed very, very yeah. quickly, and um, I see this in meditators when I'm teaching in large organizations where I'll be in an auditorium of 500 people and, you know, half of them would fall asleep in five minutes. And that's yeah. just because their body's turning off the cortisol, turning off the adrenaline, yeah. producing melatonin. So Beautiful. for me, that first week, being able to fall asleep was like an absolute game changer. Wow. Yeah. I know. So of course, from there, there's some of the other things, which is, you know, the other things, you just become less, I notice, and most of my students, you become less reactive, you know, less yeah. emotionally charged, yeah, nice. less pulled into the drama of life and more sovereign in your state. Yeah. It allows you to think about higher quality questions and answer higher quality problems doesn't it ah, absolutely yeah yeah absolutely it's that nice little gap there's a little gap that happens between someone saying something or something happening and then you responding and yeah. you, you it just allows you to have this space of just pause reflect <laughs> and then respond more efficiently more effectively more proactively um rather than reactively yeah i, I just love it i mean i think it uh you know, meditation, it just liberates ourselves from that uh, libit, um, limited thinking from day to day. You know, um, we can tap into our pure potential. And um, what I love about it, I mean, you probably call it something else, but I call it the matrix, but the ideas are already awaiting to beam down um, to us as conduits to respond and take action um, in the field already. And um, like nothing's new. There's no new ideas. They're always there. But if you meditate, you've got a connectivity like no other to those ideas. Yeah, the analogy I like to use, and I'll share with you now, um, is that the, I use the phone analogy, right? So um, the phone itself has an operating system, which is, is pretty good. It's got a calculator in there. It's got a camera. It's got a number of, a degree of functionality inside the structure of the phone. And that's really quite clever you know so i've got the hardware which is the casing and then the, the software inside the phone and that's like our brain so we have a hardware which is our skull and the, the physical apparatus of the brain and we have the software which is the the coded conditioned blueprint thinking apparatus that's inside there and a lot of that comes down through genetics a lot of it comes down through ancestry comes yeah. through yeah. our societal conditioning but um the phone has this incredible capacity if we if we turn this function on and that's the phone has the ability to not just access the software inside the phone, 
but access the information that is all around the phone. Mm-hmm. So now what we start to realise is that there's an, a, a, this incredible field of in, intelligence and information yeah. that the phone is in. It's not in the phone, the phone is <laughs> in it. Yeah. And so that's like us. We have our software in the brain, which is how we generally conditionally think. Uh, and then we have this field that is a web of information, a web of in knowledge and a web of creative potential that we're actually in. We're in the field of mind, the universal field of mind and all potential, Mm. all forms of phenomena that have been created and that will be created in the future always existed eternally in that field. So what I challenge my students with and my clients with is what's in the field right now that's waiting to be born as an idea and eventually manifested into a form or phenomenon that has yet to be manifested. Yeah, I love because it. Because the phone 10,000 years ago was always a potential. It just took 10,000 years till someone went, hey, a digital phone, I've got this idea. Finally connected. So, yeah. <laughs> You're the conduit. So the, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So the exciting thing is what what's there now that we haven't cognized and it could be anything and literally everything. That's amazing. So any uh, really, are any ideas really ours when we think about it? In those terms? No, we're conduits, like you said. <laughs> we're, we're, we're definitely conduits. Yeah. So they're always there. Yeah, absolutely. And it's just a matter of how how open is our mind to allowing that download to come through? How much can we stretch our mind into that field and see out of intention and desire what it is we want to cognize? Now, n- that, that doesn't mean that every idea is going to be a good idea because someone might have a, an idea to come up with a drone that could wipe out a civilization. Yeah, uh, yeah. That's not necessarily a good idea, but it's still a potential idea. It's amazing. And those protons change according to the observer as well. Absolutely. This is why we talk a lot about in the film is that because we are what we create, we have to be very careful about what we are and that's what we've got to work on. If we're building exponential technology without the development of consciousness at the same time, then that development of technology through those minds that aren't in that state of divinity or tenderness or kindness and connectivity, then then we've got a a recipe for disaster. We're on track for something quite unpleasant. Yeah, that's very true. Uh, so what I'd like to um, explore with Sorry you... Sorry about that. I just completely ended the conversation. No, 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 not at all. It's just one of those <laughs> no, deep it's very moments. Uh, yeah, we're getting run into it. Very thought-provoking. Well, I sort of <laughs> deep in thought looking out the window at the hill. Love it. Um, <laughs> but what I, what I did want to talk to you about was, um, for those that have read The 5am Club, um, obviously... Part of that morning routine is about 20-minute meditation. So in your work as an executive coach, how closely linked to high performance do you find a meditation practice? I think it's essential. You know, I love the 5M Club and, I, you know, my day starts very similar to, to that routine. Yeah. Uh, you know, journaling, running, uh, exercise, you know, meditating, yeah. reading. So um, meditation is just part of a package of steps that I think to optimize our well-being, you know, you really just look at, you know, Tools of the Titans by Tim Ferriss, and we see very much most people that are having great deals of success. Um, and when we say success, you know, we're talking about success in a good way because there yeah. can be success in a not such a good way. So we want to be successful in a good way um, and, and be inspirationally successful. I think there's a big difference between successful and being an asshole and being inspirationally yeah. Yeah. successful. And so if you look at inspirationally successful people, you know, they, they generally most of them, uh, it's not critical and essential, but we do start to see that level of um, 
you know, capacity for expansion and progressiveness and visionary and um, also consideration for the whole with their success. I think that's the new way forward. And there's some really great um, work coming out with Daniel Schmackenberger, who's in our film, um, and he's, they're starting to set up this sort of, uh, I guess, a framework for what's ahead for the planet, which is we call it Game B. Yeah. So we're moving out of Game A into Game B. And Game B is, is where um, what motivates all success and all interaction is the elevation of the whole. And when we say the whole, it's not just humans. It's got to be an equal portion, the humans, planet, and uh, animals, uh, you know, yeah. um, all, all things. Yeah. So... Why is meditation key to progress on the planet from your perspective? Uh, are we moving from head to heart centre as a collective, do you think? Yeah, I think there's two things. One is definitely that uh, when we quiet the mind, what happens is the the other, uh, you know, centre, there's, uh, there's actually three centres. You know, we've got the mind, we've got the heart, we've got the belly, the gut, which is that, that deep intuition and, and gut sense. Um, so we've become very top-heavy in our world. So mm. we are trying to stimulate that one of the three centres more than any of the other two, um, and that's by thinking, podcasts, reading, YouTube, emails. Everything we do is about mental stimulation, and what that does is it detracts from the other two, which is having that deep, intuitive yeah. gut feel sense that guides us, and also having that centre of the loving heart that is always on fire and always burning bright and always feeling a deep sense of lovingness for everything about yourself and the world around you. And those two, to have them compromised is, is going to be really detrimental to our overall, um, you know, well-being, not just as an individual, but collectively. So um, I think definitely that. And secondly, um, just being trapped in repetitive thought processes uh, by depending purely on the, the movement of thought is not going to be enough for us to propel ourselves as a species to the next level. We have to access the field of consciousness itself, the field yeah. of wisdom and the field of intelligence. Most definitely. Yeah. Like I know, I guess from the experience I've had in exec coaching as well, is that I quite often use the term about being a leader of one. So a lot of leaders look about how big their companies are or how big their divisions are that they need to lead. But I quite often found that if they're having problems in leadership roles or just in the workplace performing, quite often that stems back to challenges within themselves on how they live their own lives. So what was your experience been with that, Tom? Yeah, we always got to start, you know, it's, I, I think the, the simplest analogy here is, you know, when the uh, you get on a plane and the, the flight attendants are giving you instructions about, you know, if we ever get into a dangerous situation, then the, the mask drop down you've got to put yours on first so that you can yeah. help others and i think it's just so simple that it, everything flows from our state and i one of the things i always coach my clients is it's not what you do it's what state you're in while you do what you do yeah and that really will determine a lot about the outcome so we've got to start with ground zero and really make sure that um we're we're operating we're deciding we're acting we're speaking from that state first and let's make that the, the foundation of our attention. And then we'll work from there on the other things about how you're doing the other things that you're doing. Yeah, nice. It's amaz amazing. So when you change your frequency or thought pattern, um, I think the person next to you changes as well. I just have that belief yeah, and I've seen that. I've observed it. Yeah. There's a great phenomenon called the event horizon, mm. and that's called sphere of influence. In Sanskrit, it's called darshan, which is that it's a little bit more spiritual. 
Darshan is the, the influence of an enlightened one on, on their students. Darshan can activate someone's state through looking at them in their eye or hugging. Amma does hers through, through hugging people. But this event arising on a scientific level is this sphere of influence. So the sun has a sphere of influence to Pluto and half again. Yeah. That's gravitational pull, light, uh, warmth, all sorts of things is this sphere of influence beyond that form. And so we're starting to, to realize, and it's a long way till we really uh, grasp the depths of this, but you know, a Wi-Fi modem is a box of plastic and yeah. wire, and, mm. you know, and it has a sphere of influence beyond its physical mass. It does. Yeah. And so we as humans have that capacity. We can we can affect people through our frequencies, through our thought forms, and I think it's the tip of the iceberg what we've yet to explore about our capacity as a human to influence things yeah. around us. Well, the heart frequency, uh, you know, goes out nine metres, they say, so it's mm. amazing who we can influence with how we feel. But there's so many things going on in your life. So um, the portal, the movie, and um, the founder of the Stillness Project as well. And you've also published six books. Can you tell us about those projects? <laughs> yeah, that's way too many, I must admit. So um, I tend to just by default forget that I've got limited capacity. Sometimes <laughs> when you're operating in the field, you're like, I just do it all. And then you realise that, oh, actually, I am a human and I do have limited capacity. What have I done all these things for? So, um, yeah, the books were just, some of them are quite short books and some of them are more in-depth books like The Portal. Um, they're just, you know, I guess what I call these are mediums or, or vessels. So what happens is when we have love, light, wisdom, truth to share or whatever it is that you want to pass on to the world, we, we need to move it through a vessel, a structure, a container that holds it in. And so it can be an app, it can be a book, it can be a film, can be uh, a weekend workshop, it can be a retreat, it can be a corporate facilitation. These are just containers for delivering something that we want to provide to, to humanity. And, and for me, I look at, I've probably created too many for, for now, so um, I've got plenty on my plate with so many other devices as well and vessels that I've created, but um, they're really just ways to get knowledge out and, and techniques out to the world. And that was really just, I kind of just kept getting inspiration and kept putting um, the, the construction of that vessel into place. And I just found it quite easy to go about and getting things done. So that's just part of my, my nature, I guess. Could you expand a little bit on the stillness project for us? Yeah, it's just when I, I discovered meditation, you know, I, I really wanted to get this to the world in a big way, particularly the technique that I was teaching and, and, yeah. and had discovered. And so I sat down with some marketing agencies and we brainstormed um, my brand and everything. And um, we came up with this idea of, um, you know, for me, stillness was a really big thing. And so we, we brainstormed the brand, the Stillness Project, and got the web domain. And then um, we worked on the tagline. And I was like, you know, they, they're kind of like, what motivates you? What lights you up? And I said, we're just teaching meditation and getting people to access this, this awareness, this, this thing within us all. Um, and so they said, you know, how many people would you like to inspire? I said, I don't know, a million would be pretty cool. <laughs> and they said, but you could do that in just a few years and then what would you do? I'm like, well, it's still a big number. And they said, well, look, I think you should go with a billion. And interestingly, um, that was so correct because within, I think, two years wow. of me setting up that program, um, you know, we'd launched Mind Valley. I don't know if you know Vishnu, yeah, Mind yeah, Valley. Yeah, do. So yeah. Mind Valley had reached out to me and wanted me to go into their, their academy and, and speak Impressive. at their events. Yes. So very quickly, we'd, we'd certainly touched a million people quite quickly, but I don't know if we 
have got a million people meditating, but I think that we're just part of a... I got very less attached over the years uh, about the numbers and just really just go about just trying to do what I can yeah. to make a difference. Yeah, it's, it's less about, you know, someone said, you should have a counter on your website. It's like, oh, my God. Then <laughs> <I don't." laughs> the focus no changes, doesn't it? Yeah, totally. the focus yeah, changes, yeah, it know. becomes capital. Yeah, yeah it becomes yeah. capital. It's amazing when we strip the onion layers and we take all that away, what we own and who we really become. And you see that in meditation, don't you, Tom? Look, you know, the one thing I always go on with my students is that the biggest thing that we do with meditation is we let go, particularly with the mantra. The transcending meditation is about letting go. And I yeah. think the practice itself translates into life itself is that we mm. came with nothing. You know, we came literally with nothing. Yeah. Um, and then we picked up a body and we picked up some some family, we picked up some friends and we picked up some, some property and we picked up some Bitcoin and we picked up some, you know, some clothes. And then what's going to happen is at some point in, in, in the end of that journey, <laughs> in this incarnation, we're going to let all of that go, go again. again, every yeah. single part of it, that, the entire part, all your cells that you, you're currently residing with and the family that you're li- living with and your house, it's all going to be left behind as you go back into the, the, the ether. And physically, it looks like we prepare ourselves for that too. As as we age, we sort of become more childlike almost. Yeah, you know, I've got my beautiful two parents uh, who uh, are 85 now. And, you yeah. know, it's, um, it's fascinating to be part of that process of me now being the carer and, um, mm. and, and you know, looking at them. Me driving, you know, two days ago, driving my dad who couldn't drive. So he used mm. to drive me. Now I'm yeah. driving him, you know. It's sort of a non so isn't it? It's definitely a cycle turning, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. And it's also a um, lesson to be nice to your kids. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I said to my kids, I said, guys, Come you take a note of what I'm doing to my dad. <laughs> <laughs> you take note of this, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, like, I know we joke about it, but it's very true, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Look, unfortunately, the hour has gone very quickly. So before we start to wrap up, is there any way that people can connect with you, find your books, uh, get access to your movie? Because um, it's, a, it's a great, great, it's a documentary really, isn't it? So great it documentary and some great stories and real life examples and experiences of how meditation has literally transformed people's lives. So how do people go about getting hold of that, Tom? Yeah, so there's a couple of ways they can find me. Firstly, I'm probably the most active and most available on Instagram. Uh, I find that my preferred platform of choice oh, for, okay. as far as yeah, getting my content out there and engagement. Then um, obviously finding things like the film and my books. So there's Enter the Portal, E-N-T-E-R, Enter the Portal, is where they can find the film and the Portal book and the Portal app and the Portal program. And then um, to find more about what I do with my retreats, my coaching and my meditation and my corporate training is at tomcronin.com. Okay, so that's just that's your website? Yeah, website. Yeah, okay. So and so you've got online meditation training that people can come and do? Yep. Yeah, it's all on the tomcronin.com website. Yeah, fantastic. And so how, how do you find that experience doing the online training? Because like, like, I know you mentioned there before that you sort of broke away a little bit from the tradition there because um, that allows people from pretty much anywhere around the world to access your enormous skills and be able to tap into your, your knowledge bank, which is fantastic. Yeah, it's beautiful um, to, to have that out there. You know, I get messages from people all around the world that uh, has said that they've gone through my 21-day program and it's been completely life-changing for them. And it's just one thing that we, we throw in there as a bit of an offer for that program is they, they sign up for the program, they get an email every day with a video in it, a very intimate video of me teaching them up close how to meditate. 
But one of the things and the benefits they get from that is that I do a weekly live group meditation with all of my students from around the world. And so they get access to that on a Zoom call. They'll get the the link in the email um, each week, letting them know about that live session. So that's just something that we, we offer as an ongoing service to my students who have done either my weekend workshop uh, in person or they've done the, the online program. Either way, both of them get access to those free group meditations. And uh, we have a sort of discourse and sort of satsang or spiritual discussion as well as the meditation. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. Thanks so much for that. Mm, all good. Uh, uh, are there any tours in line anytime soon now that the borders are opening up? From yeah, I'm very yeah. excited. 2022, I've been just this week actually talking with my team about what, what's ahead. Um, ideally, what would be amazing uh, if, if things work out for 2022, uh, we've got Byron Bay Retreat happening in uh, in April. We've Woo-hoo. got potentially Bali happening wow. uh, ideally in June uh, if we don't have um, quarantining and things restricting us. But yeah. um, we've got Dubai and Greece happening uh, ideally as well in 2022, some retreats there. And um, there's, uh, I've been talking to some people just today, actually, in China about potentially exploring, doing some corporate trainings and some teaching over in China. Fantastic. But um, they, unfortunately, they told me that it's a minimum four-week quarantine uh, once you <laughs> arrive in China. And, and in some cities, it's even six weeks. So I, that's definitely not on the horizon just All yet right. at the moment. Part of the stillness project. <laughs> Oh, well, you're such a gem to have on the show. Thank you so much. Um, dispersing your wisdom and experience. We're highly grateful that you've come on. It's a pleasure to be here. It's great to chat and it's always an honour to be in these types of discussions with you. Yeah, thanks so much, Tom. And look, for all the listeners out there, please go and support Tom and check out his website, check out portal, the, the portal. The look, it's, it's, an amazing, it's an amazing story. Oh, actually, there's multiple stories actually in there, so it's amazing to see the transformation. And look, one of the beauties of meditation is that it doesn't cost you anything to do once you learn how to do it. You can do it every day in your, in the comfort of your home, at, in the beach, in the park, anywhere that you can find a place that's still and quiet. And that's life transforming. Mm, I concur. Yeah. yeah. So th- thanks very much, Tom. Thanks, and thank you Tom, for sharing us and yeah. being part of the show. Thank you so much for um, spreading so much joy to the world. Thank you. Oh, good. Great to be here. Have a great night. Thanks for chatting. <laughs> thanks. Bye. Yeah.